Norman Garmezi was a developmental psychologist and clinician at the University of Minnesota. He met thousands of children in his four decades of research. But one boy in particular stood out to him. This boy was nine years old. His mother was an alcoholic. His father was never really home much. Every day, the boy would come to school with the exact same sandwich, two slices of bread, nothing in between. At home, there wasn't really much other food available, and the only other one who was there really wasn't with it enough to make him lunch. Even so, Garmezi would later recall that this boy wanted to make sure that, quote, no one would feel pity for him and no one would know the ineptitude of his mother, end quote. Every day without fail, he'd walk in with a smile on his face and a bread sandwich tucked in his bag. The boy with the bread sandwich was part of a special group of children. He belonged to a cohort of kids, the first of many that Garmezi would spend four decades studying, that he would identify as succeeding, even excelling, despite incredibly difficult circumstances. These were the children who exhibited a trait that Garmezi would later identify as resilience. We're going to talk about resilience today. Thank you for being here. Grateful for those who who came uh, to join us on site and those watching online today. I hope you noticed the invite card uh, in your bulletin for Mike Goodwin, the Christian uh, clean comedian who's going to be here next week. Really want to encourage you. We'd love to just pack this place out. If you've had a friend that you're like, I want to invite, but I don't, I'm trying to figure out the right way. Here's how right? Here's a great opportunity. Bring them with you next Sunday night at 7 p.m. You are not going to want to miss that. It is going to be a blast, okay? So uh, do that. And I want to encourage you to fill out your connection card. After you do that, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Last Sunday, we began a sermon series uh, in the book of Revelation called Approaching the Apocalypse. And I I told you that I really do believe that history's picking up speed. (laughs) I feel like we're... We're getting close to something. Now, that has happened before in the past. There have been times, and we don't have time to track all that out, but there have been times that it felt like history was picking up steam. So we need to be flexible in our expectations about this. We talked about that last Sunday. But it does seem like, man, we're, we're moving somewhere, and, and we're getting there faster. But this book is also you know, confusing for some people. And they don't know what to do with this book. And so we're talking about for these few weeks uh, on approaching the apocalypse. There's an intentional play on words there. Yes, we feel like we're getting closer. We are approaching Christ's return, right? But we also need to talk about how we should approach this final book in our Bible. How do we approach the apocalypse? Today, the answer to the question, how do we approach the apocalypse, is this. We should approach it as resilient overcomers. That's how we're going to answer the question today, as resilient overcomers. Here's the big idea this morning. The book of Revelation teaches us why and how to live in a state of victory, because in Christ we are resilient overcomers. If you are in Christ, God has designed you to live a life of victory. And we're going to talk about what that means today. Today I want to key in on a word that John uses over and over again in the book of Revelation. It's translated, the one who is victorious. It's the Greek word, nikao. And it means to win a victory over, to be victorious, to conquer, all right? This is the normal New Testament word for victory or supremacy or success. 
Now, I want to show you just kind of the range of how this word is translated. Here's the word nikao, and you can see how it's translated, right? So overcome or overcomes, victorious when it's, you know, an adjective, conquest, conqueror, triumph, conquer, prevail, triumph over, overpower. All through the New Testament, when this word is used, you get the idea, right? It's somebody who wins. It's a winner. That's what this word means. So keep that in your mind. Now let me show you who uses it. Let's, I want to show you the distribution of, of this word through the New Testament, right? So here's Nikao in the NIV. How many times per book of the Bible of the New Testament does it appear? Well, it appears once in Luke. It appears once in John. It appears three times in Romans. Six times in 1 John. 17 times in Revelation. Now bear in mind that the Apostle John wrote the gospel that bears his name. He wrote... The, the letter that bears his name, and he wrote Revelation. <laughs> so who uses this word the most? John, right, over and over and over again. Luke uses it one time. Paul uses it three times. Everything else is John. This is a major theme for him. This is something that he cares about a lot, partly because he's so concerned with this, this, the, the conflict between God and Satan, so when, John speaks to, when Jesus speaks to his church in this apocalyptic vision that he gives to John, you're going to see this theme come out over and over again. John keeps using this word. And one of the major themes in the book of Revelation is that the powers of this world, the principalities and powers that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 of the enemy, often gain victories. We see this in Revelation 6. We see it in Revelation 11. We see it in Revelation 13. They, they gain victories, but their victories are short-lived and often fruitless. In the end, it is the ultimate victory of the Lamb and those who belong to Him that will last. That's the true victory. So when Jesus speaks to His church, He calls them champions. He calls them victors. He calls them overcomers. We don't have time to read all of chapter 2 and 3 today. I wish we did. It's good stuff. I would encourage, there are seven of these letters. I would encourage you, got, you could read one every day this week to, to keep you thinking along these lines. But what, what I want you to do is, we're going to read a few verses from each one. I want you to hear the repetition. All right? Repetition is a very important thing in Revelation. It, it really matters, all right? Um, I, I, more, we'll talk more about this next Sunday. I, I just want to give you a bit of a preview. So next Sunday's message is on the structures and the symbols and some of the repetitions that are in this book, right? So if you're like, when is he going to explain about the fill in the blank? Probably next Sunday. If that's your deal, um, next week, come back, bring a friend, okay? But what I want you to do is I want you to hear the repetition of this word. Because it matters. Look with me at Revelation chapter 2. We're going to kind of work our way through chapter 2 and 3. So if you've got a paper Bible, you might have to flip pages. If you're on a screen, you'll have to scroll quick, okay? Look at Revelation 2, 7. Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he writes, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, that's Nikao. That's the champion. That's the overcomer, right? And you're going to see this phrase pop up every single time in these letters. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Then he addresses the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2.11. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Then to the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2.17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Some of you are like, what in the world is that? We don't know exactly. We, We do know that when Moses built the Ark of the Covenant, he put some manna in a jar, the bread that came down from heaven, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. It was tucked away, hidden. Maybe we, maybe we get that. I don't know. Okay? Um, some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Then the, to the church at Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. By the way, that was a prediction aimed at Jesus, right, as Messiah. But look, just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Jesus is going to share his authority with with the victors, with the champions. To the church of Sardis, Jesus says in Revelation 3, verse 4, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Then to the church at Philadelphia, not the one in Pennsylvania, the one in Turkey. All right. In Revelation chapter 3, I am coming, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. You're like, what in the world is that? A pillar is part of the structure. It's what holds it up. It, it, it's so necessary that you, the, the structure doesn't work without it. What he's saying is, I'm going to make you belong so much that you might as well be a pillar in the temple. You have that sense of belonging in the presence of God. Can you, believe, can you wrap your head around that church that you're going to get to be in the presence of God and feel like you belong there? This is the part where your head explodes, right? Like, whoa. To the one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. Remember that scene in Toy Story where Andy writes his name on Buzz's foot? It's that. You belong to Jesus. He's going to stamp his name on you. That's awesome. Laodicea, then, in Revelation 3, verse 21, Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. You get to share the throne with Jesus in heaven. Now, that's great. Before we leave this theme, though, we got to go all the way, nearly all the way to the end of the book. Last week I had you look at chapter 1, chapter 22. Today we're looking at chapter 2 and 3 and chapter 21. Skip to Revelation 21, verse 5. Revelation 21, verse 5 says, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious, Nikao, will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Remember last week we talked about inclusio, bookends? Here's another one. It's, it's the next layer deep, right? It's the next inset layer. You've got victor, 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 all through chapter 2 and 3, and then here at the end, those who are victorious, the champions. You see the repetition, right? Well, good, but repetition in the context of what? 
Well, that's key. These verses were pulled from what's known as the seven letters to the seven churches. The churches I mentioned here were the seven, remember in Revelation, numbers matter. We'll talk more about that next week, right? All the symbols and and structure of the, the book. Numbers matter. These were these seven major leading churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern day Western Turkey. You need to understand, John did not like take dictation and send these letters out. There are seven letters, there are to seven churches, but at the end of the book, Jesus says to John, seal up this scroll. One. One. Remember, I told you last week, it's not revelations. It's revelation. If I hear you say the revelations, I will tackle you. Get it right. <laughs> it's just, there's one. So like, well, why are there, why, 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 why is this seven letters? What's going on? It is super important that you understand this. All seven churches saw what was written to the other six. Dr. Bob Lowry wrote a book called Revelations Rhapsody. Um, I I will freely confess this has been a major influence for me. And and Dr. Lowry's thinking, he was a a seminary professor of mine. He's with the Lord now. Um, Huge influence for me. Dr. Lowry's library was gifted to TCM. I don't know if you know that. We've, Chapel Rock has supported TCM for a long time. Most of its, most of its experience is one of our mission partners. And they have House Edelweiss in Heilingenkreuz, Austria, about 45 minutes outside Vienna. That's where Dr. Lowry's library is. And the first time that Chapel Rock sent the team there, the way I got to go, I wa- we were getting a tour. And we walked into the room, and they said, and I saw the plaque on the desk, and here's Dr. Lowry's library, and I wept. His, his influence on me was profound. He also taught my dad. Uh, huge influence. And, and so this, a lot of what you're going to hear through this series comes from Dr. Lowry's book. This is what he wrote about chapter 2 and 3, which I think is really significant. Look at this. He says, I believe that John's writing should be viewed as a Christian prophetic apocalyptic circular letter. And I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, that, there we go. Okay, thank you guys. Appreciate that. It's a... a Christian prophetic apocalyptic circular letter, and you notice the hyphens. Like, he thinks of that as all one word. Revelation should be viewed as a circular letter. In fact, the seven churches form a large circular pattern, like a delivery circuit when viewed on a map in the order presented in Revelation 2 and 3, starting from and returning to Ephesus. Now, here's one thing that's really interesting. In chapter 1, we get this vision of Jesus, right? This glorified vision of Jesus and one of like skin like bronze and hair like wool and all these descriptors of Jesus. And then in each of the seven letters, there's a piece of that vision. We don't need to repeat the whole thing because all seven are going to see what was written to the other six. It's a circuit. Let me show you the map, okay? So let me, get, let me do this. Here's the zoomed out one, right? Here's Greece. Right, just to give you some context of where we're talking about, the Aegean Sea, there's the Isle of Patmos. This is where John was imprisoned, and here's this circuit. Let's zoom in on this a little bit. Let's go in a little closer, okay? So here's the island of Patmos, right? There's the city of Ephesus. So they'd sail from Patmos to Ephesus. That was the closest major city. And you have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergam, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You may, I, you may not be able to notice, there's a river that runs right through here, and there's a road that runs along that river. What this means is that Laodicea would have sent it back to Ephesus. It's a circuit. That the seven churches are reading what was written to the other six. 
That's super important for you to realize. And here's the point of all that. Jesus wants all seven of these churches to get all of this content so that they can learn how to be resilient overcomers in the face of an approaching apocalypse. There have been some scholars who have said that these seven churches are symbolic of the seven ages of the church. I don't think that fits the evidence. Because there have been elements of each one all through the church's history. It, it just it doesn't fit. What fits better, in my mind, and, and, and I think to Dr. Lowry, and he's like a billion times smarter than me, is, is this idea that Jesus wants all seven churches to hear and overhear what he's saying to the church. Listen, my main goal in this series is to equip you to understand this book so that you are ready for that time to come. And it might be soon. I, I, I do believe that. And so I want to keep this as simple as I can for you. How, how do we understand this? I don't think this is about like the seven ages of the church. I think there's about, this boils down to two things. Jesus is telling his church there are some things that you should keep doing or start doing if you haven't started. And there are some things that you should stop doing or avoid if you've never done them before. That's what chapter two and three are about. And you'll see this played out as we kind of look at this, all right? He says, these are the things. If you want to be a resilient overcomer, if you want to greet the day of the Lord with joy, if you want to look forward to that trumpet sound and the sky splits and here comes Jesus, if you want to have joy on that day and not fear, there's some stuff you need to keep doing, church. And that's the first part of this. Jesus tells his church, in order to make it to the end, in order to be a resilient overcomer, there's some things that they need to keep doing. Start if they haven't started it, right? The first thing is that they need to keep repenting of sin. Keep repenting of sin. We see this to the letter of the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 5. To Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 16. To Sardis in 3.3. To Laodicea in 3.19. He says, like literally, you need to repent. There's some stuff you're doing. You need to repent of that. You need to have this continual process of repentance. A lot has been made about these letters and how Jesus has both positive and negative things to say to four of the seven, and and two of them he has only positive, and one of them he has only negative. But you've got to remember, this is a circular letter. All seven were designed to read Jesus' message to them and then overhear the message to the other six. And this theme of repentance keeps coming up. Jesus is telling us, if you want to be resilient, if you want to be a champion on the day of the Lord, you must be in the habit of repenting of your sin. Now, there's a one-time thing that happens when you first give your life to Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is the, is the spiritual discipline of when you are made aware of sin in your own life to, to turn your back on it. Repent was a term that meant to turn around and go the other way. That when, when all of a sudden you're aware of like, oh, I did wrong. I, th- that's bad. I shouldn't do that anymore. That's what I'm talking about. This, 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 the discipline of repentance, to keep repenting of your sin. Because he tells these churches, some of which he has great commendation for them. But he says, oh, but there's this thing. He tells Ephesus, you've lost your first love. You're, you're doing great, but you've lost your first. Repent of that. <laughs> some of the stuff you did in the early days of your discipleship, you're not doing it anymore. I'd love to see you start that back up. You need to keep repenting of your sin. And if you haven't done that before, you need to start. And you better start today. The only breath you're guaranteed right now is the one in your lungs in this very moment. 
In just a little while, we're going to stand and sing a song together. And if you've never accepted Christ, if you've never responded to the gospel, which is the message that God loves you so much, he sent Jesus to die on the cross in your place for your sin, and God resurrected him on the third day so that you could have victory over death. Remember, he says, they'll not be hurt by the second death. If you want that, and you've never made that decision in a little while when we sing, I would urge you to come forward, name Christ as Lord, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Man, once, and once you do that, then when you are made aware of sin in your own life, to keep the discipline of repentance, to keep doing that. Do you know that the church is the most self-repentant um, organization in the history of the world, the most self-reforming organization in the history of the world? Over and over, no other organization on the planet has reformed itself as, as much as the church. Because it'll happen over, I mean, especially over 2,000 years, we'll get off track on something. We'll get all wound up about the wrong thing. And there's someone who will rise up from within the church and be like, hey, y'all, we're messing up. We got to get back on track. Yeah. And other people will agree with them. And every now and then there'll be people who won't, and they try to burn them at the stake or whatever. But the church is the most self-reforming organization in the history of the world. And I think this is, is, the, is proof, right? I believe that this process is happening now. I think we're going through this right now as we experience people falling away from the Lord, falling away from the faith, and it's the church going, whoa, whoa, we have been majoring in the minors. We need to get back on track. God's mission for us is to seek and save the lost by making disciples that make disciples. And every second we're not doing that, we're messing up. We need to do that. And I believe that God is calling his church back to that through this, this teaching. We need to keep repenting of our sin if our faith is going to last. That's the first thing. The second thing that we need to keep doing is to keep persevering in witness and holiness. Keep persevering in witness and holiness. To keep on keeping on. We see this, Jesus says this to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 3, to Smyrna in 2.10, to Pergamum in 2.13, to Thyatira in 2.19 and 2.25, to Sardis in chapter 3, verse 4, and to Philadelphia in chapter 3.11. Listen, if you ignore everything else I say today, get this right now. The thing Jesus says the most to all seven of these churches is keep persevering in your witness and in your righteous living. He says that more than any other message in these two chapters. Keep on keeping on. Jesus is telling you, if you want all the blessings that Jesus promises in here, in Revelation 2 and 3, just to catalog these, to eat from the tree of life. When's the last time we saw the tree of life? Creation account in Genesis. We were designed at creation to eat from this tree. Sin messed that up. One day God is going to restore that. Jesus promises that those who are victorious will get, have you ever in your life thought how cool would it be to be in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? Yeah. You get to. If you last, if you persevere in righteousness and in witness, you get to do that. You get to eat from that tree. Jesus says that you will not be hurt by the second death. If you're a Christian, you're not afraid of death. No fear. You're not afraid of what happens after you die. No fear. You're not hurt by it. Right? To eat some of the hidden manna. I'm not 100% sure what that is. I, probably a reference to the manna in the 
Ark of the Covenant? Maybe. We don't know exactly. To receive a white stone with a new name. I don't know what that is either. But if Jesus is going to give it to me, I want it. I'll take it. Whatever he wants to give me, I'll take. Right? To have authority over the nations. I'd settle with authority over my kids at this point. But I'll take that. Cool. That's, that's great. To walk with God dressed in white. <laughs> wow. You understand? What did they do in the garden? Genesis 1, 2, 2 and 3. They walked with God. They wore something different, but they walked with God. To be a pillar in God's temple, I told you, you'll, you'll belong there. You'll, fit like, you'll feel like you fit right in. To sit on Jesus' throne with him. Can you imagine the God of the universe when you enter the throne room going, right here. <clears throat> whoa, whoa, inviting you to sit next to him in glory. How, how does that happen? You keep persevering in your witness. You keep on keeping on. And you persevere in holiness, righteous living. At the beginning of the message, I told you about Norman Garmezi. Building on Garmezi's research, a developmental psychologist named Emmy Werner published the results of a 32-year-long longitudinal study. She took 698 children from Kauai, Hawaii, and studied them from before they were born until they were in their 30s. Long study. So she had a ton of data to sort through. All right? And, and she, she monitored them for any exposure to stress, right? Maternal stress in utero, poverty, problems in the family, so on. Two-thirds of the kids came from families that we would say were, you know, essentially stable and successful and happy. The other third qualified as at risk. There was some kind of brokenness in their family, divorce, drunkenness, drugs, poverty, whatever, right? Problems. Like Garmezi, she discovered that not all of the at-risk kids reacted to stress in the same way. Some of them, or excuse me, most of them displayed outward signs of trauma. But about a third, so it's a third of a third, did not. They developed into competent, confident, and caring young adults. And so she asked the question, what was it that set these kids apart? She studied them over 30 years. And what she found is these resilient children tended to meet the world on their own terms. That was her phrase. Most importantly, though, what she discovered, and these are her words, is that these resilient children had what psychologists call an internal locus of control. They believed that they, and not their circumstances, affected their achievements. And the resilient children saw themselves as orchestrators of their own fate. Now, here's why I tell you that. The worldview that sponsored that Research is not inherently Christian, right? So I'm not saying that what she said is gospel truth, but I think that there's a significant observation there. When we keep doing what Jesus commanded, to repent of our sin and persevere in witness and holiness, he creates in us this internal locus of control that enables us to view his approaching apocalypse not with fear, but with joy. Here's what I mean. So many times, Christians have this view of the end times, and they're like, it's going to be hard, and it's going to be scary, and we need to hang on, and ah, uh, I don't know, ah, uh, and we feel like we're out of control. That is not what Jesus is telling you. 
Jesus is saying, if you will keep repenting of your sin, keep persevering in your witness and in your righteous living, you will have a sense of victory even in the midst of all that turmoil at the end. That what it does, Christian, is it creates in you this sense of, of resilience, right? That I have overcome. I'll get through this. And it's not this white-knuckle thing. I just got to hang on long enough to the end. No, you can greet this with joy, with confidence, with power because of Jesus' victory in you. See, part of the message of the seven letters to the seven churches is that every Christian can actually do something to improve their resilience. There's actually something you can do to become more of a victor, more of a champion. So do it. Keep doing it. Start doing it if you haven't. But becoming an overcomer is not solely focused on what we do. There are also some things that we need to stop doing, right? So chapter 2 and 3 says that there are some things you should keep doing, but it also says that there are some things you should stop doing. In order to experience the victory that Jesus gives us, there are some things that the church needs to quit, (laughs) As before, I think that the seven letters describe two things that a victorious church needs to stop doing. First is to stop accepting false teaching. Stop accepting false teaching. We see this in Jesus' words to Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, and to Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 20. Listen, church, if you're going to be a resilient overcomer, right, if you're going to last in these coming, approaching apocalypse, you have got to stop accepting false teaching, To Pergamum and Thyatira, Jesus said, he's like, you guys have to stop believing garbage. And this is is vital. Listen, if you're going to last until the end, you have to to know that what you're receiving is true according to Scripture. A couple weeks ago, there was a worrying report released by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research that shows that American evangelicals are increasingly believing things that the church has called heresy for hundreds of years. Stuff like this, that Jesus is not the only way to God. 56% of those studied agreed with that statement. Wait, what? I think he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. Like in my Bible, that's red. So if you don't believe that, you're, you know, I mean, I guess you're entitled to your own opinion. You can be wrong. Jesus doesn't believe that. Uh, 73% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And I had to check, are they surveying evangelicals or Mormons? Because that's what Mormons believe. 60% said the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. And I was like, listen, I like Star Wars too, but I don't live in a galaxy far, far away. And if you, there's more, and it's not exactly happy reading, but you can find it at thestateoftheology.com. Listen, I'm not a researcher. I'd like to think I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I, I, I cannot help but wonder if some of the falling away that we have seen from both the Lord and from his church is a direct result of people accepting so much false teaching that they're not really even Christian anymore. They give up the faith, not because it's hard, but because they bought into so much garbage, they just don't want to pretend anymore. And so they walk away. And Jesus said in these last days, there would be a falling away. And I look at a culture that's falling away, 
and I think, I think the apocalypse is approaching. Jesus says, stop tolerating false teaching. That's one thing. The second thing he says is to stop tolerating pretense and immorality. Stop tolerating pretense to pretend to be something you're not and immorality, to live in a way contrary to righteous life. He says this to Ephesians. He says, you know, you've lost your first love. Quit pretending that you're in love with me. You're not. He says it to Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 20. He says it to Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. He says to these churches, you're tolerating Jezebel and her immorality. And he says it to Laodicea in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, you're lukewarm. Now, we have to be careful here because when someone in my position speaks this way, it can very quickly spiral into spiritual abuse. And I want to avoid that like the plague. Please hear my heart. I'm not saying that we should go around telling people, ha, I caught you. I knew you were a hypocrite. I, I, see, you're doing the thing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we need to stop tolerating sin first and foremost in our own life. Because I don't know about you, but I am really, really, really good at tolerating the sin in my own life. It's not that big of a deal. What I do wrong is not that big of a deal. What you do wrong is really bad and you should stop. But what I do is not that big of a deal. Come on. It, you want to you you not tolerate sin? Not tolerate your own first before you worry about anybody else's. But there is a place to lovingly hold each other accountable. And the reason for this is simple. If you, as my brothers and sisters, refuse to help me confront my own sin in love, how in the world am I going to grow? I live in the echo chamber of my own mind. That's not helpful. It's not good. How in the world am I going to have the resilience I need to approach the apocalypse? Here's the answer. I won't. We've got to learn to do this in love and, and to find a way and be in relationship. And if you don't have someone that you're in relationship with who can say this to you, I, I, would, I would say, like, you need to get plugged into a smaller group than just this. I love this. I love being with you on Sunday morning. But you need to be a little, with a little more FaceTime with other people who can say to you, hey, I know you said you want to be like Jesus. What you're doing doesn't exactly serve that goal. Can we talk about that? If we can learn to do this in love and stop tolerating it when we as the church pretend to have a spiritual life we don't really possess or pretend not to see areas of brokenness that are there that we refuse to surrender. If we can stop doing that, I believe we will gain the resilience we need to be ready for Christ's return. I want to tell you something hard. Every day, 13 Christians are killed because of their faith across the planet. Lots more Christians than that die every day. 13 are killed because they are Christians. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. Another five are kidnapped, abducted. That's the report in the, at the end of 2021 in the World Watch List, which is the largest annual accounting from open doors of the top 50 countries where Christians are persecuted because of their faith. They're persecuted because they follow Jesus. David Curry, the president of Open Doors, writes this. You might think that the list is about oppression. It's not. The list is really about resilience. 
The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean that the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, they're losing their faith and turning away from one another. But that's not what's happening, he writes. The listed nations contain 309 million Christians living in places with very high or extreme levels of persecution. Do you know what it was last year? 260 million. A nearly 50 million person increase. So is persecution of God's church growing? Yes, but so is the church of Jesus Christ. And it is growing in places where it's being persecuted. They are the champions. (laughs) Is that going to happen here? I don't know. Probably at a different level. They are the champions. When we get to heaven and we're gathered around the throne, I got no problem with a Chinese Christian being way closer up there than me. When we get to heaven and we're gathered around the throne, I got no problem with an Afghani Christian who has to have church in a cave being way closer to the front than I am. But we're part of that number. Because Jesus says to you in here, you are a champion. If you last to the end, you are victorious, right? And here's the thing. Here's what I want you to get and we're done, all right? Jesus promises victory to his disciples, and it is an extension of his own. The one place in John's gospel where we see Nikao is in John chapter 16, verse 33. Look at this. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome, Nikao, the world. The victory church that we have is simply an extension of the victory Jesus won on the cross and in an empty tomb. You win because he won. You probably heard me say, I've read the end of the book. We win. And that's true, we do. But do not make the mistake of thinking that our victory is only in the future. No, church, no. Our victory is right now. You are walking in victory if you're in Christ. Live that way. There's some things you need to keep doing. Some things you need to stop doing. It's pretty simple. And Jesus gave you this letter so that you would know. So maybe you're here this morning and there's some stuff that you've been doing wrong. And you're like, I need to stop. And so what we're going to do in just a second when we stand and sing is going to be a time of repentance for you. You might even want to tell somebody next to you, like, would you hold me accountable? <laughs> Casey said we need to grow in that. Would you hold me accountable? Maybe there's something you need to start doing. Maybe, maybe you've never, ever shared your faith with anybody. You, you, you can't keep doing it because you haven't started. Start. The time is short. Start. You don't know how long you have. That sky might split tomorrow. You might not even get through lunch. Start. Maybe what you need to start is a relationship with Jesus. And so as we stand and sing in just a second, I'm going to invite you to come forward. If you've never named Christ as Lord, you've got the opportunity to do it right now. To, to call Jesus Savior and Lord, to be baptized, and to walk in discipleship to him. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to sing together, and you respond as God leads you.